Welcome in AWA Unleashed. We are the self-proclaimed number one preeminent podcast dedicated to telling the stories and reliving the memories of what we consider to be the best promotion uh, ever to exist, territorial promotion, and that is the AWA, the American Wrestling Association. My name is Chris Tubbs. I'm the one that brings us in, but we have got a cast of, uh, I can't even say dozens, I can't even say a couple, you know, yeah, Okay, I feel Mick. Wait a minute. Okay, there's you, there's Joe, there's me. We're missing somebody. Hello. We're missing. Where's the kitty cat? Where? No. I, I, I heard her. Where is she? She. Well, I, we can't do a podcast without your cat. Yeah, we we actually can and we will. Um, the cat and I got into a little bit this morning because I, I said, if you're going to continue to be on this podcast, I want 10% of your meow mix for the rest of your life. <laughs> and we had a dispute. The cat grabbed her Halliburton and, and she's gone. So uh, not, not quite sure uh, if she'll be back or not, but she's not going to hold me up. I mean, that's, you know, pure and simple. Uh, you know, I gave her the break and, you know, yeah. that's, that's it. Didn't you say she felt she was going to be booked on every show from here on out then? That's exactly right. You know, she figured that she was oh, actually she, she wanted to take Tupic spot. And I, I just said, <laughs> you know, you know, Tell her I will pay her five dollars to take my spot. Wow. Shit, I'll kick in on that. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> you had a cat fight. <laughs> so here we go. huh? Here we go again. Yes, here we go again. This is a fun one, guys, because these are always some of the more enjoyable ones. Uh, we've got a no DQ&A, and I know they say card subject to change. Uh, we were scheduled to have uh, Princess Victoria on, but unfortunately, scheduling-wise, we couldn't make it work. We're hoping to, to get her on, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later. But that's, you know, that's just what this is, right? Like, we... We try and set things up the best that we can, but at the end of the day, real life kicks in. And sometimes things just don't work out. doesn't mean that we won't have her on. It's just We just got to sh shuffle a few things. You know, every once in a while, you know, you think you're going to get Nick Bockwinkle and then you get Silo Sam. Um, you know, but as you say, program subject to change and and, uh, and we'll make do. This is going to be, I always like the Q&As. You know, we, we let the fans in. Um, yeah. let them, you know, to tell us what they want to hear about and we go with it. So it's going to be fun. Let's right, do so it. Let's take care of some business. Uh, first of all, you see that up there, seventh Avenue pizza. Uh, I want to thank them for everything that they do for us. Uh, check out their brand new breakfast pizza. Uh, let us know where you're finding it as well. Let us know in the comments, uh, share, subscribe, uh, to our podcast, any of the podcast channels. And when you make a comment there, let us know where you find the 7th Avenue Pizza. Uh, what's your favorite as well, along with uh, Soda Stick. Soda Stick's been with us since the uh, very beginning. I want to thank them for everything that we that they do for us, including giving us uh, the opportunity for some merchandise. Uh, AWA Unleashed merch. Go to SodaStickCO.com and the promo code Unleashed. We've got the hoodie. You can get your name. Uh, your personalized name in there. They've got the black and white t-shirt. It's just so cool. So uh, shout out to Landon and everybody with uh, Soda Stick. All right, we ready to go? Ready to go. All right, let's let's uh, let's do it. Uh, question number one for you, Mick, from Dick Grossman. 
Uh, my dad says Larry Hennig owned a restaurant on Lake George back in the day. Is this true? And did the wrestlers hang out there? Yes and yes. Uh, the restaurant, bar, club, whatever you want to call it, that uh, Larry owned, operated, was called the By George Inn, uh, by Lake George. And yes, the guys went out there. Larry was a very hospitable host. From what I understand, I don't know if we, if we got a, a photo of the boys out at the, uh, there they are. And I'm going to say that goes back 50 years, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. Uh, from your left, that would be Buddy Wolf, uh, beautiful Buddy Wolf. And then, of course, Larry Hennig himself. Then there is Larry Hainimi, a.k.a. Luscious Lars Anderson, Horst Hoffman, and a very young, my God, the guy, he looks like he's... He, he almost came out of the nursery. That's uh, Baron Von Raschke. And uh, the, the boys had a good time uh, out at Larry's place, needless to say. And because it was Larry's own place, they didn't have to uh, worry about the local constabulary coming in and uh, putting out the fire, so to speak. But, yeah, that was that was a hangout. They didn't need to just be at that hangout to have a good time, just oh. for the record. Uh, mm. yeah, exactly. Yeah, but uh, Larry owned the place for a while, and uh, similar to Baron Von Raschke and his wigwam, you know, his, his wigwam souvenir shop, uh, they got into some uh, outside interests outside of wrestling, and it was pretty successful for a while. What was that word? Constabulary? Constabulary? I, I don't be careful. Careful, because you, you're going to swallow your tongue, and then we're screwed for the next hour, so... Well, no, I, I just want to know the words you made up because I don't even think constabulary. Uh, the word was constabulary, uh, and, and actually, I believe it is kind of related to like the police department, law enforcement, that type thing, which I thought you would be familiar with, but uh, no. Just feel the love in the room. Absolutely. I am I am as pure as the winter snow, Mitkarch. It's that quite yellow up. outside my window, but that's. <laughs> You're right there. Hey, um, this one's actually for me from Lisa uh, Horror. What was it about the AWA that you feel was the number one promotion? I just think the amount of talent that came through here. I mean, you you look at it throughout the course of of history. Number one, I felt like it was so unique when it started, and just the footprint that it had as well, just in terms of the upper Midwest and you know, going into Canada and you, you look at the map and you're like, like literally all the way to the West coast, almost over to, to Portland and Don Owens, like it was a WA country. And I, I don't know that necessarily, you know, expanding into California, you know, San Francisco, I'm not sure that was, you know, really the, the thing, but I just think between that and the amount of talent that came through, at its peak, I don't think any promotion had more talent that came through. And it kind of seemed to me, guys, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but even because of the weather, I mean, that might have been a, a detriment for some. But just knowing, I would feel the reputation, right, of the A. And obviously, I wasn't around during the heyday, but I'm learning as we go just feel like this was kind of the it place to be if you really wanted to get that notoriety because you had the, the cream of the crop, the best of the best that were here. You know, everybody is, is uh, 
partial to their own promotion, and I'm sure a lot of people in NWA territory, uh, Mid-Atlantic, whatever, would say, we had the best, we had the best. But I'm with you, Chris, in terms of the overall talent that came through the AWA for years, uh, from the 1960s right on through, um, you can't beat it. And I, we've said so many times, unfortunately, the AWA does not get its just due outside of the AWA loyalists. And I don't understand it, but, but I'm with you. Talent-wise, absolutely the best. Well, Matt, I think you could expand and say that the other territories as well aren't getting their just well, due yeah. Yeah. what they've deserved. Because let's face it, the WWE... It, it has almost buried it. Um, it. It made all of that obsolete because absolutely. it took all of, because I, I don't think I, to kind of go on that show. I think that people look at WWE and they don't know where all these talent came from. It's not like they just went to WWE. They had to come from other places. Right. right. Well, and the last or another example that I'll use is the WWE Hall of Fame. It's a travesty that the likes of a Mad Dog, Vashon, and the Ray the Crippler Stevens are not in a, a wrestling Hall of Fame. What, mm-hmm. unfortunately, the majority of fans in this day and age perceive to be professional wrestling. I, how, how, it, it, it's a travesty. The WWE Hall of Fame, for, for all of the good that they may have done over the years or everything that they have done for the industry and changed yeah. it, I will respectfully or maybe disrespectfully say that the WWE Hall of Fame um, for a true wrestling fan and not just a WWE fan is a joke. Yes, that's the that's the word I was going to use. It it's the WWE Hall of Fame is for them. It's what they deem to be Hall of Fame worthy. And when you're dealing with one person's opinion, and we know who that person is. I just don't feel like it does justice to, yeah, a lot of the other territories and promotions that really the 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 pillars, the salt of the earth folks that helped build those, they don't get their just due because they weren't, you know, white hot in WWE or they weren't a WWE product at one point. Well, all you can say as the example, Coco Beware is in and Ivan Koloff is not. Mm-hmm. So there you go. There's your uh, there's your proof of the pudding. One of many examples. Yeah, yep, yep, absolutely. Yep. This one for you, Mick, from Mike Overbach. Uh, do you have any photos of Maurice Vachon before he became Mad Dog? Oh, well, of course. Uh, Mad Dog Vachon, Maurice Vachon, was a tremendous amateur wrestler for Canada. Uh, he was an alternate on the Olympic team. A great, great technical wrestler. And then, you know, early on, look at that. Look at that. There he is. That goes back to about 1948. And Mad Dog was representing Canada uh, in the Olympics. Look at that head of hair on this guy. I was going to say, I didn't even recognize him. Isn't that something? That is Mad Dog Vashon. You know, when, when he turned to the Mad Dog, obviously his career took off and he never looked back but uh there's an early shot of mad dog Vashon and joe as you and i have said outside of the ring one of the nicest guys you would ever want to meet in wrestling fun and funny i yeah. mean just 
Uh, I, I remember one time we had him in at the Minneapolis Auditorium. Um, it was a car show. We brought him in for an interview when we were doing the classic AWA. And this was after he had lost his leg in that unfortunate jogging accident down in Iowa. I was Iowa, right? Yep. yep. And he had a scooter. So somebody had told me that if he was here, I go to the front door to, to escort uh, Maurice to the, uh, to the table. He gets on his scooter. He takes off like a bat out of hell or, or, or a dog hearing a doorbell starts beeping the horn on the little scooter and just telling everybody, get out of the way, the mad dog is on the loom. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Quick question on, was he always mad dog? Did he ever wrestle as Maurice Bashan? He did. He wrestled as Maurice Bashan early in his career. And then, I, you know, I forget the story. I know somebody once said to him, you know, you look like a mad dog, you know, because of your size, blah, blah, blah. But he did early on, yeah, he was Maurice Vachon, and boy, once he uh, he adopted the canine uh, visage, it, it went straight uphill from there. One of the all-time greats in Mad Dog Vachon. Agreed. All right, the next one is for you, Joe, from Christine Cole. What was it like working with Adrian Adonis when he came back to the AWA in 1987? Uh, Christine, thanks for the question. Adrian was a, he was a consummate pro, uh, uh, very nice. I never had any issues with him. Uh, I remember first, the first time when he walked into the studio and I'm like, I remember adorable Adrian Adonis from, uh, wearing from New York city, wearing the leather coat and a leather hat and, and being a part of the East West connection. And he came up, um, shall we say, with his, uh, his makeup on, not knowing what to expect. He was as nice, he, he was polite, he was kind. I was a, about a 22-year-old, uh, barely wet behind the ears production guy, and he treated me with the utmost respect, whether it was in the studio or on the road. Um, and much like other wrestlers would as well. They'd get done with a promo and they'd ask, hey, is that good? Need me to do anything different? I said, no, hey, you're, you're, you're the pro. You got everything covered that we needed to. You know, Joe, it's interesting. When Adrian went to New York and went to WWF back in the day, he first came in as that Adonis tough guy. And then, of course, he teamed up with Dick Murdoch for a while. And then all of a sudden... Lo and behold, imagine that somebody got a hold of him and, and gave him the gimmick. And uh, sadly, that's what a lot of people remember. They don't know the big tough guy, you know, beat him up at the docks. Adrian Adonis that we saw here in the AWA. Amazingly, even at probably close to 400 pounds towards the end, he could still bump. He could still move. And as you said, consummate professional, always very friendly. I remember the um, when I was putting together, it would have been um, the best of AWA Classic Wrestling Volume 1 and saw the match of the East-West Connection um, against the High Flyers in a steel cage and seeing Adrian come off of the top of the steel cage doing... I'll call it the snook, although nobody did it like Jimmy. It was just, you know, with his hands up and, and everything. 
But I saw that and I'm like, damn, and I thought Snooker was the only one. And here's a guy who is probably close to 280 to 300 pounds at the time. I mean, Adrian was getting thick then. But it's like, holy shit. Uh, I'd have been up there and screaming for for holy hell from being up that high and trying to jump off a bat cage. There's another example. You know, Keith Franks gets into the wrestling business as, you know, a journeyman. And then all of a sudden, he's adorable Adrian Adonis, and, uh, you know, the, the roof opened up. And uh, sadly, you know, 1988, we lost Adrian, but uh, a tremendous competitor, no doubt. Yes. Yeah, and, it, and it is a shame, Mick, like you're saying, a lot of people just remember him from the flowers and make up from uh, what he did in, in uh, WWF, WWE now. Uh, this one is coming from Stan Wickstrom. Uh, it's a question directed to me. I heard a rumor that Mike Enos has a son working for NXT. Is that true? And do you have a photo? Uh, thanks for the question, Stan. And it is not uh, Mike Enos, but it is Wayne Bloom. And uh, he goes by Von Wagner in uh, NXT. So, uh, yeah, th- there, is a, uh, th- there is a second generation uh, Wayne Bloom uh, son in there. And I'm going to get that uh, picture for you here in a minute. You'll probably recognize him. Uh, there he is right there. So, yeah. I mean, he's he's got the jeans. I would say oh. he's, yeah. The sky's the limit for this kid. But can he say, wait a minute, Mike, I've got this? You know, it's interesting. It wasn't that long ago. He actually cut a promo, and I forget who was out <laughs> with him. But he actually did deliver that line, wait a minute, <laughs> I've got this. Uh, this is, a, first of all, facially, he looks like Wayne Bloom. Yes, Second, he does. He is a monster of a guy. When you see him in person, I mean, you get a crick in your neck looking up at him. Uh, a very talented uh, Von Wagner, Cal Bloom uh, is his real name, and uh, making waves. And uh, Wayne Bloom, one of my favorite guys. Well, and, and Wayne Wayne was a, a big guy. Oh, he uh, sure was. Was he a, was it a power lifter or a deadlifter? I think, yeah, yeah, one or the other. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was pretty accomplished at it, but Wayne... Mick, I agree with you. I mean, Wayne Bloom, one of my favorites uh, in the later years of the AWA um, yep. class personified. Yep. And uh, let's go ahead and, and go to the uh, the next question here. Uh, this one is for you, Mick, from Kyle in Milwaukee. Uh, please tell the Bobby Heenan hotel desk clerk story from Chicago again. Oh. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I, I think I I think I told that one before. We're at the air host in Chicago. And of course Bobby Heenan always referred to the air host as, you know, four star hot and cold running rats. And uh, there there was a uh, I, I'm walking out of the bar from at the air host. Where there what well, there he is. Look at him. Look at him. There's a guy, boy, talk about the cat that ate the canary. Um, Bobby Heenan is at the front desk. There's no desk clerk in sight, and there's a guy that is obviously checking into the hotel. And Bobby never has the guy sign anything, nothing, takes a key off the off the rack, hands it to the guy, says room 112 or 115, whatever it is, and the guy said, don't I have to sign in? Bobby says, yeah, we'll take care of that in the morning when you check out. Well, just at that moment, the guy's walking down the hall towards his room, towards the elevator, now here comes the desk clerk 
And the desk clerk says to Bobby, well, what the hell was that? What was going on here? And I'm going to tone this down a little bit. Bobby said this was apparently he was giving a key to a security guy because there was a rumor that somebody was having an affair with Roy Rogers' horse. Now, how he knew it was Roy Rogers' horse, I don't know. Could have been any horse. Uh, Could have been been Mr. Ed, what have you. And then Bobby walked away from this desk clerk, and the desk clerk looked at me, and he looked around, and he basically said, what the F is going on around here? I don't know how that panned out eventually, if they got the horse out of there, if they gave him, you know, the the hay room suite on, uh, you know, one of the levels there. But, yeah, that was – very typical of Bobby Heenan. Just tossed the guy the key and said, have at it. A lot of horsing around in that story. Bra-boom-ba. Yeah, oh. see, like that. Oh. And that is not the only time that Bobby did anything like that. And and as I said, I toned the story down. Uh, Bobby's language wasn't exactly the guy is having an affair with the horse. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you can kind of go from there. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. So you, you have stories too, Joe, or are these not suitable to air? No, no, I think we can move on to the next question. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, you, you had my interest, but now you've got my curiosity. Oh, we'll, we'll do another Bobby Heenan episode here. I mean, all, yes. all, I can, all I can say is that the stories that I've heard were secondhand because Bobby had left for the WWF before I started my run in, or my career in the AWA. So we'll just say um, that story doesn't surprise me. You get All right. Let's go to uh, the next one for all three of us from Craig the Bruiser. Uh, who's your all-time favorite AWA tag team? Uh, let's go to Joe and then Mick and then uh, to me. And I think this was one of the things, guys, that made the AWA so good is just their lineage of tag teams. I mean – you could mention 10 tag teams. They could all be considered <laughs> like the best. Yeah. And you still wouldn't be able to get to everybody. You took the words right out of my mouth because I, the first thing that pops into my mind is how can you choose just one? Yeah. Um, growing up, it was Hercules Cortez and Red Bastine for me. Um, I could throw in the Crusher and Dick the Bruiser. Um, but if I had to pick my favorite team, um, I, I, I gotta go with the road warriors and, and I will concede they were not the greatest workers in the world. They, 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 I don't know if they could sell, but they did not sell, but that was part of the gimmick. But what I loved about animal and hawk, these two huge beasts of men who could cut an incredible promo and they would come out to Iron Man and when those first boom, boom You knew it, you knew who they were Exactly, and every arena the crowd would just erupt and I've said it on this this, uh, podcast, I've said it to people across the way, Animal and Hawk did for tag team wrestling or did to tag team wrestling what Hulk Hogan did to professional wrestling. They changed it from 
guys that you would see in a bar like the Crusher, uh, Mad Dog, smaller guys, to these large, large human beings that, mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the 80s, I mean, Vince had a big part of it, but it became, unfortunately, the steroid era. He wanted bodybuilders, guys that looked like, you know, chiseled statues. But all of that aside, the the feels that I had when, when that music started and Animal and Hawk came out, uh, even though they were heels going against the fabulous ones in an early run in the AWA, I couldn't cheer for the fabulous ones. It was like the first time in my life as a wrestling fan that I was cheering for heels. Actually, second time. First time would have been Nick Bockwinkle against Adnan for the belt. I was rooting for Nick. Like, you got to choose somebody. But in a good versus bad scenario, Animal and Hawk, I cheered for, and they are at the top of my tag team list. Well, and I think that's why, Joe, and you, I think that's why they, when you hear about that reception, what do you hear? The Road Warrior Pop. Yep. Like, that's that's why they call it the Road Warrior Pop, because you uh, all the boom, yeah, you knew, like, immediately. Sometimes it's like it takes a couple of chords for music to, to, to kick in. Yeah, instantly. I didn't see him at their heyday, but I could only imagine, like, and I've seen the videos, just that Road Warrior pop. It's always going to be a Road Warrior pop. Yep. All right. I'm up, and this is going to shock everybody. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to come out of left field with this one. My favorite okay. team of all time would have to be Nick Bockwinkle and Ray Stevens. Uh, I grew up, obviously, way, way back. There's Nick, Ray, and Bobby. Uh, I go back to this Stan Kowalski, Tiny Mills, Kalmakoff's era, uh, Larry Hennig and Harley Race. But to me, and again, this is the 1970s, which was red hot mm-hmm. in the AWA. I don't think Bachwinkle and Steve, I don't think anybody got more legitimate heat than Nick Bachwinkle and Ray Stevens with Bobby in their corner. And Bobby, of course, was a heat magnet. We've said it so many times. But Nick and Ray had been in the business already for a long time. And ring generals, and man, did they get the crowd irate. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. People shooting at the ring, stabbings, and everything else when when Nick and Ray were there. So clearly my favorite tag team of all time. Can't dispute it. I'm going to go a little bit off the beaten path here, guys, because uh, everybody knows that I came in – well after the heyday. I, I started watching in the mid to late 80s. So I, I could go back and I could say, you know, Bruiser and Stan. I, I could go back and say all of that stuff, but it wouldn't be genuine and authentic to what I saw in my era. And to me, there were two teams that, that stood out. Um, number one, we mentioned one of the individuals uh, earlier on. I just thought these guys and their attitude, they – they were so arrogant, but they were good. The Destruction Crew. Oh, yeah. Mike Enos and Wayne the Train Blue. These guys, I felt, were just, they they were pricks, basically. It's the best way that I, but they were pricks that would beat you up. Like, they were, to me, I thought they were, like, legitimate badass, and I just, I hated them. But I also looked at them as, they weren't the overly muscular 
but I felt like they were they were strong and intimidating enough for me to be like, okay, I, I like watching them. And I didn't really know what I was watching. I knew that I was watching good wrestlers, but I just didn't exactly know what I was watching at the time. So again, I could go back and I could look at that and I could say, well, yeah, those, but it was the destruction crew. A- another tag team. I'm going to go into the same era and this might seem patronizing, but anybody that has heard me talk about the impact that wrestling made for me. And honestly, this is going to be our friend, Mike Moran, Rick Gantner, the ah. Texas hangman. They scared me. They legitimately scared me as a kid. I remember watching them in the uh, Southwest state university gymnasium. My very first wrestling show was an AWA show. And there, and I remember I was, I mean, I was like, I, I mean, no, I was a little bit older than that. But I remember I was in the crowd and I wanted to go over near them. And I think one, I can't remember who it was, but one of them like turned around and was like, I'm that boring. And I'm like, oh shit. Okay. Like I scurried back with my tail between my legs. And I will always remember that. And I mean, you, you get to know, and I mean, I've gotten to be friends with Mike Moran right now. And, and you just hear, him talk just the nicest guy in the world but that team scared me so those two teams i feel for me personally again they might not be everybody's but for me and my age and my era those were the two teams that really stood out i would say hey, man, let me my, make, let me let me handle this one gimmick infringement i got a i I had to do that little tribute to Wayne the Train Bloom. Oh, that, that's all right. You know, and we've talked. The Hangman and the Destruction Crew were shining lights in a very dark era for yeah. the AWA. And I would have to say, along maybe with Larry Zabisco at the time, they were the ones that kind of kept the AWA afloat. So uh, good call, Chris. Yeah. So we'll say one thing about, well, first quick thing about the Hangman. I personally... Love the gimmick when yes. they came up with it. You had two guys who had uh, been enhancement talent up until that point, for the most part in the AWA. They came up with that gimmick, and I loved it. As far as the Destruction Crew, um, I didn't mention them earlier. as one of my favorite tag teams. Um, I would put them up there as well because their promos were so entertaining. So, yeah, so good. I, I won't say I'll challenge somebody to do it, but for people that think that what me and Mike Enos did, where he would take a real legitimate sledgehammer, extend his arm out, and just with his wrist, turn it and kiss that hammer, I'm just curious as to how many people tried that and helped their local dentist buy an additional Cadillac or cabin from all of the broken teeth that they would have to bring yeah. here. That is that wasn't a gimmick sledgehammer, right? That that was a real sledgehammer. That was, that was a gimmick. Real sledgehammer. Okay. That would be right up there with the Iron Sheik's clubs. Yeah. You know, if you if you think that's easy to, you know, swing those things around, go ahead, big shot. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's go to the uh, next one. This one's for you, Mick, from Lee Silver. Uh, you guys mentioned Pat Patterson on occasion. He was a great worker in his opinion. He's seen footage of him singing My Way at Cauliflower Alley Club, and he was very good. Do you have other anecdotes about Pat? 
I have a couple of Pat Patterson <laughs> stories. Uh, first of all, as far as Pat doing the, the song My Way, he was great. And he uh, also sang a rendition of Louis Armstrong's Wonderful World that knocked people's socks off. Very entertaining guy and a great wrestler. Uh, when Pat was here working with Ray Stevens as his partner in the 1970s, there he is, the late Pat Patterson. Here's a couple of stories away from the ring uh, with Pat Patterson, which is, of course, I say that, and it's kind of intriguing already. But uh, I remember at the premiere of a movie called Paradise Alley, which I believe had uh, Sylvester Stallone and Terry Funk, I think, was in the movie as well. Uh, it was kind of about a, a professional arm wrestler, if I recall. And Pat Patterson is at the Hopkins Theater in Minnesota, along with some of the other wrestlers that went for the premiere. And there's a very quiet, somber moment in the movie. I mean, you could heard a pin drop. And all of a sudden, from about four rows back of me, there's a voice. Four rows in front of me is Evan Johnson, great amateur wrestler. And this voice behind me, oh, Evan, Evan Johnson, I love you so much. And everybody's turning around, what the hell is that? And, of course, it was Pat Patterson, and poor Evan Johnson, Olympic champion, is slinking down into his chair. He's now among the jujubes and gummies on the floor. Uh, that was one Pat Patterson story, just out of the blue. The other one, after a, a particularly grueling match at the Minneapolis Auditorium, some fans were giving Pat some shit as he was walking out of the building to his car. And this might be the most ironic statement <laughs> ever. Uh, this kid is yelling at Pat, and Pat is, for the most part, oh, stop, 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 you're hurting my feeling, you know, stop, you got to quit. Well, finally, he stops dead in his tracks, does Pat, and he turns around and he says to the kid, if you don't stop picking on me, I'm not going to sleep with your mother anymore. <laughs> well, I don't think truer words were ever spoken. Um, as, you, as you look back at it right now, but uh, that was Pat Patterson. And uh, yeah, there's your, uh, your Pat Patterson anecdotes. <laughs> I don't. I think Evan Johnson actually got out of the business shortly after that. I think <laughs> Pat Patterson chased, chased him out of the business. Pat did it. Oh my gosh. Okay, uh, this one's for you, Joe, from Brian Cern. Who scared you more when you worked for the AWA production team, Bruiser Brody or Stan Hansen? Brody. Uh, it, it, and I'll say it only because uh, Brody came on to the, well, they both were on the scene in the AWA before I got there, but Brody, uh, as a fan watching him before I started my career, scared the living shit out of me. Um, it, it just, I mean, look, look at him, a, a face only a mother could love or, or, or his, uh, actually very wonderful wife who I've had the pleasure to interview she's but so she's so awesome she i love that woman but brody um joe, i mean just a beast of a man a, a quick story whether i said it or not but after wrestle rock we were at jukebox saturday night for the post wrestle rock party and brody's i'm standing at the bar oh, they're they're standing Youth! but brody um comes up and starts talking to me 
I'm 20 years old, had not been in the business a year yet. And I'm like, holy shit, is he going to flip out and start going, hush, hush, and, 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 and start beating the shit out of me or what? Ended up having a full conversation. He asked me to give him a ride back to his hotel room um, out by where now is the Mall of America. I had a 1984 Dodge Charger three, uh, a, a two-door hatchback, and I've got this guy who's a legitimate 6'7", 6'8", 300 pounds, looking like him in my car. <laughs> and all I kept thinking about is how many paper towels am I going to need to clean the shit out of my underwear? <laughs> um, but polite, nice, I mean, Frank Goodish, Bruiser Brody, um, was was not the scary man that you saw on TV. He was a very nice guy, but being green into the business, first time I ever had to do an interview with him, there's no doubt. Bruiser Brody was the one that scared me the most, but for unwarranted reasons. Well, Brody's just lucky that Greg Gagne couldn't get himself out of that headset <laughs> TV taping. Uh, when Brody was annihilating half of the job train, you know, had Greg been able to pick up that headset, take it off his head and get into the ring that, you know, things might've been different, but, uh, you know, anyway, yeah, Craig was, <laughs> Craig was it's a butterfly effect. Thanks to that headset. <laughs> Craig was one hell of a guy. No question about it. <laughs> Uh, let's uh, get the next one for you, Mick, uh, from Jerry Berg. Did Vern Gagne ever team with the Crusher? Absolutely. He did. Um, the first run that they had as a tag team was when Crusher came back as a babyface uh, in 1965, and Vern and Crusher actually went over. Uh, that's a little bit later on in their in their careers, but uh, Vern and Crush – in 1965, defeated Larry Hennig and Harley Race for the AWA World Tag Team Championship in Minneapolis. Uh, they just held the title for a few weeks. They gave it back to Larry and Harley. Um, but at the time, you know, so many times we've seen this where Vern would team up with Mad Dog or, you know, one of the old bitter enemies. So Crusher and Vern buried their alleged hatchet and defeated Larry Hennig and Harley Race. And that was at a time when uh, Hennig and Race, of course, were the Dolly sisters, along with the third Dolly, uh, Chris Markoff. And uh, that led to a six-man tag team match uh, down the road where Vern and Crusher picked Kenny J as their tag team partner to go against Larry Hennig, Harley Race, and Chris Markoff. And uh, Kenny J got the pinfall victory over Harley Race. So... <laughs> history there uh kenny pins a world champion and uh crusher and Vern held the title for about two three weeks you know mick you say that uh vernon crusher um buried the hatchet to tag team together um I'll, let me if i could sort of update that we'll just say that they set aside their differences for that run because I don't think they got along too yeah. well outside of the ring. In fact, I, I, I know so from a conversation that I had with Crush uh, later on. But, you know, they made it work. They were pros and very successful at that. There you got it. Yeah, ultimately, it's about business. It's you about making it. money. And yeah. you might hate somebody, disagree with them. But if if you can make some money, I mean, the true pros put that to the side. Well, 
could make an eye. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, one of them making the money, and the other guy's, you know, negotiating with a cat. <laughs> and the cat's winning. That's <laughs> darn right. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, this is uh, this one's for me from Tanya B. Uh, did you happen to watch Tales from the Territories AWA episode? And if so, what is your take on Ken Patera's explanation from the McDonald's incident? Oh, uh, thanks for your question, Tanya. I did watch it, and it seemed like it was a little off, a little different from what I had heard. Like some of the interpretation was a little different. Um, I mean, no doubt there was some, uh, some you know, truth to it. I have no doubt that it was a very intense situation. Uh, as for how it, it came about, I know that we've talked to somebody here on the show that had a firsthand uh, account of everything, and we're going to get that person on again because I really think that, that we, we need to get more into that. But, I, I mean... I don't, I, I just, it wasn't what I was expecting the explanation to be. Just let me say that. I had heard variations of his explanation before. I think this time it got even more embellished. Uh, I think there was a little, a little more, uh, you know, salad on the plate this time. Uh, there's Ken Patera. I mean, you because, know, of, because of the document. I mean, obviously you're going to embellish to a certain point for television. I mean, that's, right. that's what you do as a showman. But it just, it, it felt like it, it didn't all fall into place. I, I will reserve comment. Um, Ken Patera is a, is a friend of mine, and I know Ken doesn't like the McDonald's incident discussed at any length. But I would say, yeah, I'm not quite sure it went down exactly as Ken described, but I wasn't there. Stories that I had heard, I will concur with what you just said, Mike. There you go. Great. So you're going to leave me out to dry, so Ken's going to kick my ass. That's all. Absolutely. Well, better you than us. Welcome to the business. <laughs> sell. Chris, just remember to sell. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It won't be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking hate you guys right now. <laughs> fucking hate you guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> for Mick from Randy Hatch, I remember before Sergeant Slaughter came in a Super Destroyer Mark II, there was an original Super Destroyer in the AWA managed by Lord Alfred Hayes. Disappeared rather quickly. He'll probably disappear quicker than uh, I will when uh, Ken Patera finds out. Uh, who was he and what was the story on his departure? Okay, uh, you're going back to middle 1970s again and the original uh, Super Destroyer, and I know we got a, a picture of him uh, with mask and without mask, was a man by the name of Don Jardine. And Don, of course, made his career under another mask name uh, as the Spoiler, the original Spoiler, and, you know, made all his money that way. That was uh, uh, Don in the hood with his manager, Lord Alfred Hayes. And I think you may have a photograph of Don without the mask, well, like uh, that, let's call him, let's call uh, the Lord by his proper name, Lord Elfinko Hayes. All right. Okay. All right. There's a, a tip of the hat to the crusher, uh, oh, as, you, as you normally do. Uh, the story that I got on Super Destroyer's departure from the AWA, which was definitely abrupt, 
um, was that Vern wanted to unmask him as Don Jardine. And Don did not like that prospect, uh, not only because he hadn't been here for, you know, any length of time, but he just, he didn't want to be exposed as Super Destroyer Don Jardine. Uh, so he left and he was quickly replaced by Bob Remus, Sergeant Slaughter, uh, and uh, as Super Destroyer Mark II, and then eventually Super Destroyer Mark III was Neil Gway out of Canada. Uh, but the original Super D1 here in the AWA was uh, Don Jardine, a.k.a. the spoiler. Yeah, and I had the picture. I have no idea what happened, but that's for wanting me to get my ass kicked from Ken Patera, so you kind of see, deserve that. See, you're ruined. You're scarred now. Mentally, you're gone. I can't even. I can't, I can't even. I can't even focus. I feel like I get to put the blinds down. Um, <laughs> for uh, for you, Joe from uh, Barbara Lynn Walker, uh, you were there at the end of the AWA run. Do you feel there was anything Vern Kanye could have done uh, to save the territory? I know this is something that we've we've heard about several times. Yeah, I have been asked this question uh, many times, and uh, the, the the truth is. The simple answer is no. Um, there, there is no one reason why Vern couldn't save the AWA. It was really a a culmination of of many different factors from Vern uh, trying to do it old school and continuing to make money off of the live gate rather than taking advantage of television, which he paid stations back in the day to run the all-star wrestling show. Um, you know, so he, he could have, I can't even imagine how many more, how much more money Vern could have made if he could have sold the shows and if he would have taken the, taken advantage of having the incredible ratings. Um, but I also have to throw in there, uh, it, during the mid to late 80s, Vern was dealing with the state of Minnesota and eminent domain on his incredible estate on Lake Minnetinki, another tribute yep. to the Crusader. But um, Vern fought that tooth and nail, eventually ended up losing. And uh, you, you factor in the amount of money that he spent on that with. Um, um, his unwillingness really to uh, to change, uh, or I should say change too late to do the business, but um, I, I, it, it wasn't going to happen. I will say, I will say if, and this might be uh, an unpopular uh, answer from me, and this is just my interpretation, I think if Vern would have allowed Greg to handle more of the business things in the 1980s, um, more so right after the defections started, that the AWA might have had a chance, could have stayed around mm. for a little bit longer, maybe been a little bit more successful because Greg saw that television could be uh, a benefit and the contract with the ESPN, which by the way, in all honesty, was what kept the AWA afloat uh, in the, I would say from uh, 85 and beyond, which unfortunately is when I started. So Mick, you caused Vern all of the money, but after they hired me, 
had sank quicker than the ratings when Mick Karch was doing color commentary. But, um, uh, but, <laughs> but no, I, you know, the, the reality is the AWA was not going to be able to compete with the WWF, a big, huge company out of New York. They had, they, they, they were too far beyond what the AWA could catch yeah. up to. And the same with, with the NWA um, and every other organization. They were still all the old boys club and they kept to their territories. The, the thing is like WWF was picking this talent from all of these other territories. If these territories were going to survive, including the AWA, where were they going to get their talent from to replace it? That's the thing. Like all of these, you can't replace all of those big names in such a short period of time absolutely. with somebody of the same quality. Well, you know, Chris, you're absolutely right. And it was after that that Vern started going to Eddie Sharkey's group. Uh, the Pro Wrestling America guys all of a sudden were, you know, main eventing some of the shows because the talent was gone. And just to put a lid on this conversation, Hulk Hogan would not have made a difference, ladies and gentlemen, if he would have been given the title. I think what would have happened is Hulk would have pulled a Medusa. And I think at some point, Hulk would have just up and left, whether he had the AWA championship or not, gone like a thief in the night. You know, this is all speculation, but Vince was going to do what he was going to do. And Joe's points about TV and Vern uh, being short-sighted all played into it. I will, I will have to add one final thought to that. In no way do I blame the WWF for what they did. I, I didn't like it. I didn't like the bastardization of it's the been, it, it, it was business. It's making money. Exactly. And keep yeah. something that everybody needs to keep in mind, that wrestlers were not under contract. It was a handshake agreement back in those days with the AWA. They were independent contractors. They came and went all the time, and promoters used them. Whenever you saw this is a loser leaves town match, it's because the promoter thought that, you know what, okay, let's just freshen things up. You're going to lose this match. You're going to go wrestle down in the NWA or world class or wherever you wanted to go. And then we'll bring you back when all of a sudden, six months, a year later, I have a surprise tag mm -hmm. team partner or we have a surprise opponent for you. Yeah. And they would come back. So the, the, the whole not being loyal thing, I, you know, I had a problem with it back in the, back in the 80s, um, working with the AWA. I don't blame the talent for leaving. They were doing what was in their best interests, even though... It sucked for me as a fan. Yeah, no, no question. Uh, we have uh, just a few minutes left here, guys. We got a, a few more questions. We'll roll those over to the next episode um, because I felt like we got into some really good stuff here. So, um, yeah, that was – these are always fun. And as I like to say that being said, uh, let's move on to our shout-outs and then we'll uh, wrap it up and – Kind of tell you what we're hoping to accomplish next week. If not, we'll we'll figure something else out. But I know, uh, Nick, let's uh, go ahead and start with the, the shout-outs. Um, who do I have up first? You have Jonathan up there? or who? who are we yeah, I've got, yeah, I've got Jonathan up, so why don't you go first? 
Okay, my shout out is to a, a recent, recently acquired friend, uh, former wrestler, booker, promoter, TV guy uh, out in the British Columbia area, the Pacific Northwest, Jonathan Fuzzy Sayers. And boy, is he a devoted listener of the podcast and fan of our uh, uh, Facebook pages. And just a great, great guy. And uh, Jonathan Fuzzy, hats off to you. All right, up to you, Joe. Uh, another, I'll call him a wrestling production guy. I mean, Mick, you've worked with him. He did uh, an interview with you many years ago. Um, I, the, the little guy. He, you know, I, I think if he would have been around in the '30s, I think he could have starred as one of the Munchkins in, in the Wizard of Oz. And I say that lovingly. I'm going to throw my wow. shot. None other than Scotty Jameson. Wow, boy. Hey, I, if I, if I was just straightforward and didn't throw some kind of a rib on Scotty, I think I'd hear about it. He'd be pissed at me, to be That's honest. That's true. You, you have to have. Have to throw some shade. Have to throw Part some shade. Scotty. Yeah. Follow the yellow brick road. <laughs> oh, God. We have to Okay, go ahead. Wow. You guys are going to get your ass kicked by Scotty Jameson. I'm going to get my my ass kicked by, by Ken Patera. I like the odds better for Mick and I. Than I think so, too. Yeah, one of these things is not like the other, huh? <laughs> one of these things just doesn't belong. Uh, I'm going to go with Rob. Uh, Rob V um, comments a lot on our, our YouTube uh, videos, and he's always there just kind of giving some input and his thoughts. So thank you, Rob, for uh, always chiming in. And for everybody at YouTube, I, I don't always get a chance to reply. I do the very best that I can. I'm, I apologize if I don't get to all of the comments, but I do read them. So uh, good, bad, or otherwise, keep commenting. Um, I love it. So thank you to, uh, to Rob. Uh, I want to thank seventh Avenue pizza as well for what they do. Best frozen pizza on the market. If you're a fan of frozen pizza, uh, high quality frozen pizza, um, let us know where you are finding it as well, uh, in the Metro, or if you want to order seventh Avenue pizza.com. Uh, also soda stick, you can see the, uh, logo. I'm gonna put the logo up there in the corner. Uh, you can get your AWA Unleashed merchandise. You can get official Unleashed merchandise. If you get merchandise other places, just know that it's bootleg. It's not real. If it doesn't have the soda stick seal on it, guys, it's not legit. Uh, you can get your hoodie with your personalized name on the inside. Uh, they run a little bit snug, so size up. Uh, but they're really comfortable. I enjoy mine immensely. Um I've got a couple of T-shirts, the black and white T-shirts, which are the new ones that we've been uh, working with them on. All sold out of the uh, the old white ones. So uh, we've got that. And I think that's it for the sponsorship. Go ahead, Joe. Well, I was just going to say, Mick, we can talk about it after the podcast, but I think you and I are going to have to start uh, uh, figuring out who's going to be the the new host of the show because Chris is going to get the, the shit kicked out of him by Ken Patera. So just reach out to me and we'll start throwing out some names. I think he's going to be all right because he's not going to leave his house because similarly to Greg Gagne, he's going to have a very tough time removing the headset and Stan will be left out on a street corner. There's some place in, in, uh, you know, suburban Plymouth, Minnesota and probably fight himself, you know, and Stan is so, you know, 
nearsighted, you probably won't know the difference anyway. So Chris may live to fight another day. Chris, I hope to see you on the next one and for the next hundred. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into what we're going to do for the uh, the next show before I really kind of try and get out of here. So uh, what are we uh, we're uh, are we going to try and go a little barbaric next week? We certainly are. Let's hope for the best because this guy is so off the wall. You never know if he's going to show up for a podcast or slam you through a car window. Uh, we are scheduled to have our good friend John Nord, the barbarian, the berserker, Yukon John. And if he shows up, and we're going to get him eventually. We hope it's next week. Yeah, we've been we've been oh. working on it, and we were. I, I think we were hoping to get it today. Uh, last minute again, last minute scheduling conflict, but we're we're working. I feel like we're as far down the road uh, setting up John as we can, and it's going to be can't miss. You know what I, I I think we need to do, Chris, from now on is something the old AWA did constantly when a guy would no show, they would always blame it on bad flight conditions coming in from Denver. Okay. Snow in Denver, whether or not it was July Fourth or not, there was yeah. always a blizzard in Denver where the guys couldn't make their plane connections. So hopefully, you know, John will uh, John will be all right and we'll we'll get him on. Do you mean wrestling's a work, Mick? I never freaking said that. I just I just wanted to clarify. You dirty son of a bitch. How could you even infer? Oh my god, I just I... Oh you can't get you can't get, get, get out of the fence. God, god. god.